Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O'Lion Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Kevin Waits, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits, where we unpack stuff, stuff about culture, stuff about race, our differences, and how we can all brace each other to make our communities better. Uh, today, I'm proud to announce uh, and welcome a good friend of mine, uh, Christopher Papa Smurf Case, into the show. Uh, uh, I, I thank you for being here. Yeah, I appreciate you for the invite. So if you would... I know who you are, right? Would you would you tell a listening audience a little bit about you, your background, where you grew up, some of the uh, pitfalls or challenges you faced in your life? Well, basically, it's it's, it's a American story um, based on the situation African Americans went through in this country. You know, we all at one point lived below the poverty line, and growing up in New York. Uh, and having a vast amount of different um, ethnic backgrounds, you wondered why it was just my race, my people, people that look like me, that was living so bad. And when I say bad, I mean financially. Um, so at an early age, I didn't like that. And I decided I was going to do something about it. And I originally started selling um, soda bottles and um, aluminum cans and things like that to the recycler in New York. And you didn't really make that much. And I felt the need to acquire enough money to take my mother and father and my brother and sister out of what I considered that time the hood. So I, I said I had to find something that would get me more money. And one of the um, biggest things in New York at that time was marijuana. So I said, well, I don't smoke. Maybe I should try to do that. Well, I did. Unfortunately, I was good at it, but it was against the law. So early on, I had run-ins with the law, and there was really no guidance, no one there to put me back on the right track. So, of course, you know, once I got out of the situation, I, I kind of got myself together to not have to go through that again by making what I did and making myself more smart to what I was doing. I got real good at it, Kevin. I got real good. I made a lot of money. And my father ended up retiring. When he retired, he's originally from South Carolina. He moved back here. And at that age, you know, I was 17. I had to go with my family. I came down here. And, um, I tried to do the same thing. And what I didn't know was South Carolina was really behind. They didn't have uh, the influences I did in New York. And money wasn't as prevalent as it was in New York. You had young guys that had a lot down here. You had a very selective few. Most people was working class. Well, anyway, I tried what I did in New York and I perfected it and I did good. But it was in the turn of the century, at the 88 mark, 88, 89 mark, when they had the war on drugs. Um, I got caught in that. When I got caught in that, um, I ended up going to prison. Uh, I was facing 25 years. But I had a little bit of change. So I got me a good lawyer. And my lawyer put me in a position to where I would have to go to jail, but not that much. To this day, I believe that was the worst thing that happened to me because I went away for five years and I got out and I was so anxious because I, I knew where I messed up at that I could go back in it and this time correct some of those mistakes and I would end up successful. <laughs> That's not the way it works. Um, I did it for a while, maybe about six more years, seven years, and by 91 I got caught again. 
when I got caught this time, they sent me to the penitentiary. I went to the big house. And I was there for a while. I had uh, 10 years. And I hated everything. You know, I, I heard the stories that the white man did this to us. And, you know, slavery made us this way. And I believed it. I played into that. And as time was going on, and I started to realize that a lot of the guys who was uh, getting their GEDs and um, going to church and different things like that while they was incarcerated was going home, I said, let me try it. So I did. But I wasn't expecting that once I started reading some of the books I read, read Naeem Akbar, Malcolm X, you know, just a different array of books that I read that I was actually going to wake up. And I woke up and realized that there was more to life than the fast lane. So I started applying myself, and lo and behold, they released me. To this day, we don't know why. I really can't tell you why I got released. My mother said it was because she was praying. Uh, I came home, I had a lot of money, and I started putting it back into the community. Because I started to realize that I was part of the problem. I polluted my community um, with crack, uh, cocaine, and different things like that. So I wanted to use the money to lift the community up. But of course, you know, living where I live at, a lot of people don't want uh, an ex-felon to be involved in any kind of rehabilitation or, or reform. So I've had to do a lot on my own and cost me a lot of money. But I met some good people along the way. And fortunately, um, I started to uh, get my conversation to the young kids. And at the first, a lot of them were saying, oh, you fell off, you fell off. And I always replied that I woke up. It's a difference in falling off and waking up. I woke up and I realized that the life that I was living wasn't going to be a benefit to myself, my family, and the likelihood I was going to either end up in prison or dead. So I changed. and. Um, I changed so drastically with the name I had, you know, Papa Smurf. It's a long story about that. Anyone who knows that cartoon knew Papa Smurf, ran everything, and that's how I got the name. But I had so much respect that I said I might as well use it for something, you know, that could benefit the whole totality, the whole community. And it worked. And March the 19th of 2019, Right before the pandemic, I appeared before the South Carolina Parole and Pardon Board, and they pardoned me. And again, no one understood how that happened, but it happened. So I have to say, it's been a journey of meeting people like you um, that loved into me, that fed into me, made it much easier to do what I do did and not feel like I owed anybody anything. You made me feel like I owed it to myself, that all that I was doing was to benefit the better man I was to come. And basically, you know, I, I won almost every award you possibly can get. I don't even accept them no more. I don't, I don't go on TV no more. This is the first thing I've done in a long time because, you know, I've been out here so long trying to talk to these young kids and they're still killing each other. So it's obvious my message is not really penetrating. Um, a good jailhouse story is good, Kevin, but it has to be something to compare to, like your life. You know, me and you from the same hood, you from Charleston. You know, you was right there where you could have got caught up in a lot of stuff, but you didn't. And I didn't have that at one point when I was going to these schools and speaking at, at these colleges and things like that. I didn't have nothing to compare my life to, but now I do. And I think it's become a little more successful because uh, me and the group I'm along with, Butch Kennedy, Lisa Rahim, we was able to get into the school along with uh, Chief Mullins. He had a program called Camp Hope. And we would meet freshmen and uh, sophomores and we would feed into them with, with you know life, things that happen in life. And it was such a wonderful thing that after we met these kids and we didn't see them no longer because they aged out, you know, you get a certain age, you can't come to Camp Hope. We received invitations to graduations. And I don't know how the quote go, but I think it says, it's much easier to fix young children than broken men. And with all the invitations we got to come to these high school graduations, 
I could really see I was making a difference. And with the respect I have in the community, I can't see no other way possible to use it than to help uplift young kids that possibly might travel the road I did. That's awesome, man. I, I, I really, uh, like I said, I know you, you know what I'm saying? I know the story, but I, I really want the listening audience to know and understand and, and the way you articulate it, they can feel it. You know, I want to dig a little deeper. Now, you made a comment a couple of times and you said that you 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 talked about how you woke up and you talked about how the young cats. And, and this is really for the for the younger listeners that's that's out there. You talked about how they initially said you fell off, you fallen off. And, and you said, no, nah, I wasn't falling off. I just woke up. I want you to go in and dig a little deeper into that. Wow. Yeah, brother. That was something. We have a culture in our community that hangs on to words that really don't fit. They will subliminally seduce young kids into believing what isn't compared to what is. I've always heard that the working man is a sucker. And I found out that that's not true because I haven't committed a crime since I got out in 2000. I have five automobiles, two Cadillacs, a Volvo, a Crown Victoria, and a Dodge Charger. I have a wonderful house in my Um, I'm actually living in an apartment right now for some other reasons with my wife, but um, we're still together. I've been married to her since 2002. 20 years now, but um, showing many of these kids a softer side of life complicates things because there's too much that goes against what I talk about. You've got the Jay-Z's and the different basketball players, you know, um, Derrick Rose, Ron James, that has a lifestyle that's not conducive to where we live at. And a lot of African-American children um, believe that hope is a luxury they can't afford. So when they see someone like me that still has a lot of gold chains and I still have a lot of things and they hear me tell them to rebuke that, they believe I fell off. They believe I've sold out, that I'm no longer a part of that culture. So when I talk to these kids, I have to explain to them that nothing that they're going to get is ever going to be. Um, easy. But I think you don't have to go to prison to prove that you're a man. And so many of them do now, too. I think this system uh, has has incubated to the point to where when you go to jail now, they have cell phones in there. And these guys is taking pictures and making videos of themselves incarcerated. And it looks cool to a lot of these young dudes. So when I tell them you know, oh, you, it's not necessary to carry a gun. The first feedback I get is, if I don't have one and he got one, he's going to kill me. I say, well, how about if he don't have one? And a lot of them be like, yeah, that makes sense. But the risk factor is just too high. Then I have to tell them about how many times I got shot. And one of the biggest uh, things that happened to me was when I got shot in the head. I was paralyzed for three years. And I had a family. I was in New York. I had a family that refused to accept the fact that I couldn't walk. My uncle, he, uh, you know, he had to literally change my diapers, uh, and he got tired of doing it. And he told me, one day you're going to be able to tell someone the story, and they're going to understand that getting shot changes your whole reality, your your biology, the, the your, your makeup. what's inside of you changes to the point to where sometimes you can't breathe good. Sometimes your legs give out on you and things like that. So when I'm telling these kids this, trying to get them to understand and them knowing I have a lot of respect in the community, they don't see it all the time as falling off, but they rather take their chances. They believe they're smarter than me that, um, I, I made a wrong move somewhere and they're, they're, they're going to do better and they continue to go. And that's why I continue to speak to them because I don't think any of us actually fell off. I think of a lot of us have woken up and realized that there's more to life than the life of crime. I mean, I have, I'm a, you know, I always tell people this and, you know, I want them to understand that I went from a drug dealer that had a lot 
to where I drive a sanitation truck now. But I make over $50,000 a year. That was something I made in a month. But I'm so comfortable now. Some people even look at me and say, man, you gained a lot of weight. And I tell me I have. Because I'm no longer worried. I'm no longer running from the police. I'm no longer, I don't have to worry about no one wanting to shoot me. I don't even own a gun. You know, with my pardon, I could have I could have purchased a firearm. And I don't see the need to have to have one. You know, some people say, well, you need it in your home to guard. But with my name, you know, my name Smurf, and so many people know me, I don't really believe no one would want to violate me like that. So I believe a lot of kids going to look at it as falling off. And you have to show them that drug dealing on the left is not going to be anywhere conducive to the lifestyle you're going to have on the right if you work or educate yourself. Because you're going to make a life for yourself that doesn't have any consequences. The consequences I'm talking about is incarceration and death. Those are the only two in the drug game or in anything that has has anything to do with the street. So I talk to him a lot about that. And, I, and I'm getting the point across. But trying to get Nuck Nuck, Pookie, and Ray Ray to actually sit down and hear this story is one of the hardest tasks in the world because we're living in a time well, financially, we're so far behind that I think people feel like I'll risk my freedom to feed my family. All right, man. I appreciate that perspective. Uh, if you would, <clears throat> excuse me. you were in Charleston during some, some pretty pivotal times. Uh, the murder of Walter Scott. The tragedy at Mother Manuel. And, and, and I want you... Uh, knowing that that's your home, you 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 love Charleston, you love the Holy City, you love Chucktown. How did it make you feel when 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 those when things like that happened? You know, I mean, there's much more educated people that can speak on these subjects, but you know, South Carolina has a very unique history. South Carolina committed America's greatest sin when they took human beings and enslaved them. I never in my life would have thought I would have ended up in Charleston. But coming here, because in New York, I never faced racism. I never did. I mean, I lived with Jews. Matter of fact, I went to school with Jewish people. I went to a Jewish school and a lot of um, Puerto Ricans, Cubans lived around me, a lot of Jamaicans. Um, I never faced it till I got here. And I always felt that what happened here was going to one day open the eyes of America, as it did when Martin Luther King wrote that famous letter from the Brittingham, Alabama jail. And the church, many people in the church felt he was agitating and didn't want to support him. But you had young college students uh, that felt the need to get out and talk about what America was doing. And they came out. And, of course, we know the news was there. And they filmed it. But what happened was you it depicted America's interior, what was inside of America. And that was racism, sexism, classism, dualism, all the isms you could think of. And they sacked the dogs on the students. And that's when America realized how evil it was. But a lot of us have not really tried to get rid of that. We've tried to find ways to live with that. And when the tragedy that happened with Walter Scott, I was out with a good friend of mine, Pastor Dixon, uh, and we was out at the site the night it happened. I was after it happened. We was at the site. And a young man came up to um, another brother who passed away, Muadim, the Baha, and told him he had something he wanted him to see. And unfortunately, we were so tied up in what was going on, we couldn't get off. So finally, Muadim left. And when Muadim came back, he was shaking his head saying he had the video of the cop that literally murdered um, Brother Scott. So, of course, you know, we all wanted to see it. We went and seen it. We watched it, and I made a suggestion. Well, pass it. Well, all of us did. I'm not going to try to take credit for it. 
But we said, well, let's let's hold on to this for a second. Let's see how North Charleston is going to act. Let's see how the city of Charleston is going to act. Let's see how the state of South Carolina is going to act. And sure enough, lo and behold, at one point, they were supporting the police officer because they knew no one actually seen. And there's a story that the dead man tell no tale. But anyway, it ended up being published, put out that we had a video. And you could see how quick everybody changed. And it just felt like, here we go again. Then the other one that I think was real big was when they um, killed the nine uh, people at the church. And the man said he wanted to start a race riot. Well, that was all good and done. That happens every day in America. But what they didn't think was going to happen was there was going to be video of everything leading up to this man's arrest. And when they finally captured him the next day, they showed the cops initially pulling their guns out. But something they realized when they did it, and they put their guns away, and then out came the car, this, this young Caucasian man. And everybody was upset saying, well, if that would have been a black man killed nine people in the white church, they would have killed them. You couldn't get away from that. Because it, you've seen it with your own eyes. But as the, as more information came out, you found out they took him to Burger King and gave him um, a meal. And that upset the community. So we went out, me and some others, Pastor Dixon, uh, Tory, and a bunch. And we said, we're not going to let this city burn down as a result of one individual. So we stood up. Uh, matter of fact, I made national news. I was shown on all kinds. I was getting phone calls from everybody. I didn't do interviews because I told you I was trying to get away from that. But everyone wanted to know why did we not burn down like everybody else was doing? Because at that time, there was other things going on. And I explained to them, you know, you don't urinate on the floor in your house bathroom. But if you're at McDonald's, you might do it and don't care. We cared about our city, even though it had a stain. And it was a lot for me, but I had read so much about forgiveness. But I wanted to see things play out because personally, I didn't lose nothing that night. Uh, many families did. And sure enough, the next day when they, when they brought the young brother back or whenever it was and he was in court, everybody ended up, well, a lot of the people that was there. Uh, got up and voiced their opinions, but you had some that forgave them. So even though I hate it, and I know hate is a bad word, a strong word, when it happened and it keep repeating itself, and we keep somewhat being submissive and, 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 and docile by our approach to this very cunning um, disease of racism, I felt like, you know, a wrong could be handled wrong. And I felt like it was my duty as an ex-felon to stand up for a system that saved me. So I got on TV and I spoke out about it. And I think we did good, but I think more attention came to me because I said, now how long is this going to last before we go right back to what got us in this predicament? And we was on the bridge, kumbaya, and everything. And one year later, we was right back to the same racist stain that this country has had for so long. So it is hard to live with this. But personally, you know, I feel like we're, we're making some ground. We're moving the needle. But it's going to be more than just hearing from Papa Smurf. It's a lot more Papa Smurfs out there. And I think our community is going to have to start recognizing them. So tell me, uh, and, and I appreciate everything you said so far. Um, how hard was it, honestly, for you? And I'm just coming at you for real. How hard was it after the tragedy of Mother Emanuel uh, for you to hold the streets back? It was hard, brother. Because that night, we did make a call. A good friend of mine named Tori. Uh, made a call, and uh, we called some people, just put it like that, and we was told um, that they had prepared to do more, 
and we was tired of being passive. And, you know, you hear words like barter, you know, things like that. And we felt someone had to do something. Uh, I wouldn't say, Kevin, go ahead and do this because you've never lived the life I lived. I felt like if I had to go back, this time it would be go for trying to repair my community, rid it of this racist stain that America has created. I was so angry that night. Um, the video that they caught me talking on, as I said, went all over America. Of course, you know, they, the news was all here that night because there was a debate. I guess that's why he chose that time so he could get a lot of attention. And they caught me at one of my weakest moments after, you know, reforming myself, rehabilitating myself. I use that word, and I don't think I ever been habilitated, but I use it because that's what that's the language, the culture they're in. But I was rehabilitated, and I didn't ever think I would get that frustrated again. But when they started telling me the women and the ages of some of the young young ladies that was killed, you know, um, and some of the young men that was killed. I just couldn't believe why you killed Deacon Smith and let Nuck Nuck live. Nuck Nuck selling crack on the corner and Deacon Smith is trying to repair. And I was so angry. But what happened out there that night that changed that was uh, Chief Mullins actually came to us. You know, them guys, you know, they was licensed to carry. We had some illegal ones there too. You know, they wanted to get on the bandwagon, but the majority of them was licensed to carry. They had their guns there. They was they was brandishing their guns, letting them know we're not going to stand for this. And Chief Mullins came and he spoke to us and he said, please, whatever you do, just give me a chance. Give me 24 hours. And we, you know, we was like, nah, we tired of giving you all a chance. But I was, I'm going to be honest. I was back there agitated because I was frustrated. Um, nah, man, we've given you all all a chance. It's been 400 years that we've gone through this, you know? And he said he understand. And then Pastor Dixon grabbed my hand and said, don't forget about your famous word, consequences. And immediately I came back down because I knew the consequences of my anger. And what it could possibly do. But um, yeah, Kev, we was mad that night, man. And if they had come back, if it really was, because they was using that to throw us off so he could get away. Someone called in and said it was a bomb threat. I was with Raphael James that night on the corner of Calhoun and Meeting. They moved us from Calhoun and Meeting to Calhoun and Kent, and they blocked it all off. They had some people in the hotel across the street from the church. They brought them down and they put all of them in the Francis Marion. I went in there for a few minutes and I looking at the tears and hearing the ages of these people, I couldn't stay in there long. So I ended up back outside. But just, just the frustration of this country knowing where the problem's at and trying to find ways to live with it instead of getting rid of it, that frustrates me more than anything. That's what's up, uh so tell me, you know, through through tragedy, what I see is that someone who who people would have thought was the most unlikely person to stand up and bring people together. God used you not to get religious, you know, what I'm saying, but God used you to do that. And so I know you're 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 you have the air that you have the voice and, and, and the air the mayor. Uh, you know, city management, law enforcement. How have you used your voice and your platform uh, to bring the community together, pass the tragedies, and make things better for everybody? First of all, let me say something. I ain't afraid of religion. I'm not. Um, I, when I speak a lot of times and people ask me similar questions like what you just did, I tell them, it says in the Bible, those who much is given, much is required in return. Man, I have a wonderful family. I have seven beautiful kids. I have one now that's living with me, my son. He's my last. All the rest of my kids is graduated from high school, one in college. I mean, I have a lot to be thankful for. And that's all as a result of God. 
Now, you might have different names of them, Jehovah, Buddha, Allah, Jesus. I don't get caught up in religion. I deal strictly with spirituality. My relationship with God is personal. Me and this guy be kicking it. And I told him, I said, yo, bro, you know, you carried me this long and I don't understand why. And I'm tired of serving uh, someone who constantly takes away and never replenishes, never gives back. Let me touch them streets again and I'm going to show you better than I can tell you. Now, some people might say that's unorthodox and okay, that's you. You got your right to feel that way. Some people might say that's blasphemy. I mean, you got your right to feel the way you feel. But nobody knew how it felt when I was in prison and I had to make telephone calls like this because the tears was running from my eye listening to my mother pray for me. So when I, when I, when I realized that I, I was so blessed, I had to start going to people who would make change. And I heard you mention the mayor. He was my friend before he became the mayor. I knew him, uh, his wife, they supported me. You know, I don't have no 501C. I've raised over $10,000 for different events. Um, I don't have no, um, I don't have none of the stuff that says I have the right to go out and solicit for money. But everybody knew if I said I was going to do something, I was going to do it. Uh, and they got on, on with me. Uh, I met a wonderful man named Marlon Kempson who's now a state senator. Uh, when he was running, he was running against a good friend of mine, Robert Ford. But I felt like I do with some of these churches that you keep saying you're going to pass the torch. And when we reach for it, you never give it to us. So I thought what he did created his own chaos. And it might have been in everybody's best interest to have somebody in there with a new, refreshed voice. And I started to support Marlon Kempson. He ended up winning the seat. Now he's a state senator. Uh, Wendell Gilliard, very good friend of mine. Uh, he's a, he's a union, he works for union laborers. He does so much in the community and he's very vocal. Uh, he had me at the uh, state house and they gave me a platform to talk. And I'm not tooting my horn, but I was told I blew it away because no one wanted to hear from an ex felon. Until Papa Smurf got up there and talked about his life. Um, um, Principal Darby, he just made national news for uh, working at Walmart and giving his whole paycheck to, to, to support families that was in need. This guy uh, put me in the school when you had to be screened. And I understand the process of screening because you don't want to put a, a pedophile in the school. Uh, or someone who has a, a history of mental, mental disorder. But he felt the need to get my message there, and he got me there. And I, the list just goes on and on and on of all the people. But one of the things I did uh, that helped me establish relationships, as I, well as you, Kevin, me and you, same thing. I came up there to Georgetown one night, and I spoke to y'all. And the sheriff was there. You was there. Um the pastor was there and we hit it, one conversation brought me to where I'm at now with you. So you as well. But one of the things I realized was you never lie to someone who trusts you. You know, and I always thought about that. I said, everybody who wants something might bend the truth, you know, and if the person trusts you, you shouldn't have to. Just tell them the way it is. And I did that. And it was so unorthodox that people said, you serious about what you just said? I said, yeah, I know where a crackhead is at right now. That I just want to get him a bath, a shave, haircut, and a nice cut of clothes. He's probably going to be smoking crack tomorrow, but at least let's do it. Give me $50. And they went in their pocket and gave it. And I started to realize that every time I asked one of these people, uh, for help to help someone else, I realized that I was blessed to be a blessing. And they they wanted to get on. And I was changing. I was receiving a lot of awards at that time. I have so many. I got so many, I got them on the floor now. I don't even hang. I got some hanging on my wall. I got some behind me. I got uh, Obama one. I got uh, Martin Luther King. But 
we want to change, but we owe too many favors to the people who can make the change. So we bend the rules. I can't, and I won't. If I ask, you're not going to say, well, okay, well, I'll do this for you, but I need you to do this for me later. No. My objective now is to free the shackles. There's a song, and I don't, I don't, I'm not a singer, you know, but it says, I'm free. Thank the Lord. I'm free. No longer bound. No more change holding me. My soul is resting and it's a blessing. Thank the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm free. See, it's that concept that moved me out of that negativity because I never gave or entertained anything relatively related to that, the verses in that song. And when I thought about it, physically, I was free. There was no more change shackled on me, you know, and I had to thank the Lord, you know, and that helped me radiate a glow that made people magnetize about who this guy, ex-felon, because everybody go and check my record. I mean, <laughs> I think I, I probably got more hits on checking my record than anybody else because no one wanted to believe I could be that sincere about repairing my community. And I did all the things I did. So I got a lot of friends, but that word is used so loosely. It fits, it's politically correct, but you really find out who your friends is when you need something or when you disagree with something they believe in. Then you find out who they are. I go to the College of Charleston and I speak. A couple of times I got paid to do it. But it was so much that the students felt they needed to hear from me. They called me in and said, bruh, we ain't even got a subject. Talk. And I did. Now I'm working at the College of Charleston. Morris College, same thing. Um, um, Benedict, same thing. You know, I get the platform and I give it to them. But the one thing that I told you that I realized was missing from this equation was the people I could compare myself to, like yourself. As I said earlier, and I'm going to repeat myself, you come from where I come from. You right out the streets of Charleston. We went on the battery together on Sunday. We went to the jammerie, the basketball jammerie. You know, we did all those things together. Me and you are close in age. But why was it that I had to go into a life of crime and you went into a life of law enforcement? And after everything we've been through, look at where we're at now. We have to let these young kids know it's something out here better than the life of crime. I have a son in my house with me now. All my other kids are raised, doing good. You know, I have a son in here now. And he's proud of his father. But he likes the attention he gets when we go out and people, everybody's talking about me. Everywhere we go, we stop. Someone says something. Hey, Papa Smurf. You know, I get that because I was on TV. But what good is it to have the world and lose your soul? And I have to make him understand that. And that's what I try to do with everybody else. So all the friends, if we use that word, associates, I'll stick with friends, that cross my path, you know, I'm going to call a goat a goat and a chicken a chicken. You're not going to convince me you care about my community when every time someone dies, you on TV. I think you're trying to better your position. I don't think you really want to end this gun violence. You're trying to get yourself so maybe one day you can get a $100,000 position in the political field by taking a mayor's seat, a, a, a city councilman's seat. I don't want none of that. I'm in the hood. And the thing about it is what a lot of these people call the hood, Kevin, I call home. That's where I live at, brother. And I love where I live at, man. And I love the people I live with. I'm never going to be scared of my people. Never. And I'm not even in the condition to say I'm going to get out there and fight anybody. And I don't own a gun. I'll never own a gun again in my life. I won't. Because I know what I'll do with it. But just to have in here, like where I live at now, the children in the playground playing. You know, I got robbed of all that because I went to prison. I want to see daisies grow. I don't need roses. You put some yellow daisies out there, that's a beautiful thing for me. So I'm going to keep making friends that believe that I have something within me that can change our condition.
Man, I appreciate that. Number keep it weird with you. Uh, the night we met at the church, that was the first time we ever met. And of course, it was a tragedy uh, that, that brought us together. Uh, you know, we, we, we were watching the documentary of, you know, Mother Emanuel. And when I met you, I knew something was special about you. I knew it. We hit it off that night. You know, we dapped each other up like we knew each other for 20 years. And I, and I think it was just the sincerity and the realness about you. You know, you talk, you spoke, you talk with conviction, and it was real. And one thing I never told you, one thing I never, ever told you, is what that night you gave me hope. You gave me hope because here I am, a police chief, African-American police chief at that. And sometimes it felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. Sometimes you, you catch yourself getting cynical because all you see is bad, 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 bad. And that night, what I saw in you and how, and I'm so glad you woke up. I'm so glad you woke up. Uh, and, and I'm so glad that, hallelujah, you free. But that night when we met at Bethel AME Church in Georgetown, you gave me hope. And, and I thank you for that. I thank you for that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question, and I'm going to let you go. All right? The question is, is knowing everything that's going on in our communities, across the state, across the country, and across the world, what do you think the one thing is that's holding us back from making breakthroughs as it relates to race, culture, gender, just our differences in general. What What's holding us back and what can we do to break through? Wow. Well, first let me say this. And this, I want you to vision this. Most drug treatment centers, their treatment centers to help people get off drugs are run and facilitated by ex-narcotic users. Most alcohol treatment centers are run and facilitated by ex-alcoholics. It's even gotten to the point to major corporations like Walmart, Target, and the list goes on, have actually hired shoplifters to show them what to do to prevent people from stealing their stuff. We fail because no one wants to let Papa Smirk take a go at it. I don't have the accolades. I have a high school diploma. Well, excuse me, I got a GED. I got that in prison. And when I came home, I went back and got my high school diploma. I got a GED from Libra and a high school diploma from Somerville High School. But I don't have the accolades. But one thing I got that a lot of y'all don't got is street cred. It takes a lot to have people in the street respect you. And see, people get that confused when I say that because they see it a lot of times as fair. I'm, I, I ain't going to mess with him because I know he'll shoot me. Yeah, I had that too, but I earned their respect. We did something downtown on uh, Mall Park many years ago when I first got out. And I knew everybody down there. A couple of the guys had been in prison with me. And we was trying to create something down there for the kids. I was along with Chief Muller. He had all his police officers out there. Standing up, do, you know, trying to keep the, the bad people out, if you want to use that word. And it never worked. And I said, man, Mullins, give me a break. Give me a chance. Me and Chief Mullins walked the street of the east side and spoke to a lot of the guys. And we explained to them all we wanted to do was give these kids a fair chance. We don't want no straight bullets. We don't want no needles getting stuck in their fingers. We don't want all that. And then I asked them a question. How many of y'all have children? And all of them said, yeah, yeah, you're right, man. I wouldn't want that to happen to my son. You're right, man. I, didn't, I don't want that. And we was able to establish a relationship. And that relationship is what we need here in America. You can't tell me, and I'm not phobic, that you pay more attention to the gay and lesbian community than you do the torture that many blacks have gone through and continue to go through at the hands of racist cops. But you put your focus on something now that we have accepted. You know, I personally haven't, you know, and I have a daughter that's gay. 
I haven't personally accepted because in the Bible it tell me that's an abomination. But I also know someone wrote that. But when we start saying we're going to pick favorites, as we did with the gay and lesbian community, why not with the gang community? Why not with the drug dealer community? I'm not asking anyone to be soft on crime. I'm asking people to be smart on it. If you can establish a relationship when you know something's going to go on and the likelihood is someone's going to get hurt as a result of you not having your heir to the street, you have to go to these people and talk to them. That's why I always talk about Nuck Nuck, Pookie, and Ray Ray. Nuck Nuck, Pookie, and Ray Ray don't want to be who they are, but you don't give them no other options. There's many major cities in America that have gangs, uh, truces as a result of sitting them down together and saying, well, what do y'all want? What do y'all need? Uh, you have had in major cities, ex-felons get out and create programs that prevent young men from creating um, 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 chaos in our community. You know, Big Mama is a fourth generation on Drake Street. She's been there four generations, and now you're trying to take her house from her. Big Mama has never used no profanity in her life. Go down there now and talk to Big Mama. Watch how many curse words she used when she refers to the colonizers that's trying to take her house. Frustration and anger builds up. Red Redlining. People don't want to talk about it, but it's happening here in Charleston. They redline in certain districts. And then when the people move out because they say it's flooding and this, you take the house from them. You're just building frustration up. But they always said, some of the smart ones, the learned ones said, if you control a man's thinking, you can control his action. And that's why they had me selling dope, man. So, you know, I, I, man, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but that's my truth. Man, I had women doing some of the most disgusting things because they wanted my crack so bad. You know, when I went to prison, I had a wake up call because they made us take HIV tests. We had to take HIV and tuberculosis test. I was so afraid I was going to come up with AIDS, well, HIV, because of some of the things I did with crackheads. I mean, just to be doing it. And somehow, and I'm going to use the words of my mother, she said I was covered by the blood of Jesus. Somehow I got out of that to come back and tell the story about how I took potentially successful parents and made them addicted to crack. How could I ever repair that? Now I have five daughters. Five daughters. And I have to pray and ask God to please don't make what I've done to others a result of what happens to my kids. And as of now, God has watched over them. So we have to start talking to Nuck Nuck, Pookie, and Ray Ray. That night when we was in that church and I spoke to y'all, I don't know if you remember, y'all brought tears out my eyes. You know, you and the sheriff and a couple of your officers. Because I was like, man, you know, ain't no way y'all could be talking to me like the way y'all are. The only difference between that night, I had a Dina suit on and you had on your your um, police uniform. Two black men standing there side by side. The only difference you could tell by, between us was I had a Dina suit on and you had on a police uniform. We was We was together. That's what we need to repair America, togetherness. As Wendell Guillard always say, we're stronger together. You have to continue doing what you're doing. I've watched you. You know, you didn't even talk about it. I don't know if we are. I know you didn't want to take pictures with him. But look at what we did at the, at the juvenile detention center. You know, look at how we maneuvered our way through that. And we was able to talk to kids that never heard the truth out of the mouth of someone who lived it, but always told by the judge, if you keep acting up, I'm going to put you in jail. There was something the kids do. Stepping in, or is that how you do when you go in the building? Step in, with something to that effect. And I could not believe how the posture these young men had and the conversations we had. And you did that. You could have picked anyone. And I think you did have other people come and speak to the kids. But the kids were so magnetized to hear from someone who says it's not falling off, it's waking up. I was telling the kids about how how you think your mother going to feel 10 o'clock a.m. on a Sunday morning and you dressed and you standing at the door. And when she walks out of her room on her way to church, she asks you, why are you there? 
And you're going to say, because I go in the church with you, mama. You know what you're going to That lady going to live for another 50, 60 years. In one act of love and appreciation, you can make your mother live 60 years. Those kids wanted to talk about it. And you made that possible. You said, I got this dude named Smurf. I got to bring him up here. You made that possible. And I sat in that room and I got on some of your staff. I told them, don't be so quick to give up on these children. They're repairable. Because if they had gave up on me, I wouldn't be on this podcast tonight with you. I would have probably been still at, at well, they closed CCI down. I would have probably still been at Libra. But I'm not. I'm on the street. Until my eyes close and I'm no longer able to breathe, I like what I'm doing and I'm going to continue doing it. Well, all right, man. Much respect, much love. And, and just so you know, I didn't have a problem bringing you to talk to them kids because you gave me hope. And if you gave me hope, I know what you could do for them. All right. So I hope that you will come back and visit, man. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Uh, it has been everything plus what I thought it would be. Uh, so I hope you would definitely come back. But uh, just for everybody that's listening, you've, you've heard another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. And we'll see you next time. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find Kevin Waits on Facebook at Kevin Waits and join the Safe Conversations group. Follow the Mino Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mino Line Media. Get the Mino Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.